From Capital Analytics, I'm Abby Maloney, and this is Invest Insights. Every week, we bring you perspectives, business advice, and more from the leading executives, entrepreneurs, and investors who are building, diversifying, and leading the way in the country's fastest-growing metro markets. Real leaders, real insights, right now. Welcome to Invest Insights. I'm Abby Maloney. I'm joined today by Jeff Bartell, the Chairman and Managing Director of the Hamptons Group. Jeff, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. With an unprecedented amount of liquidity in the market, interest rates at near zero, and the aftermath of the pandemic that's rippling across industries from the form of labor and supply shortages, what are the major strategies that Hampton Group has developed in order to operate and find that predictability in this new normal? Well, first again, thank you for having me. Uh, very impressed with your team and uh, with the products and services that you provide. Uh, you know, for Hamptons Group, the first and foremost uh, issue that we've been addressing is making sure that we are agile and can deal with what have been some unpredictable aspects related to COVID uh, with respect to labor and materials for construction issues. Uh, for our own workforce, long before COVID had hit, we had been a work from anywhere, work from anywhere, uh, work from everywhere workforce. So uh, the trauma or stress that COVID provided uh, to many businesses because of physical location really didn't affect us much. Mm. That said, uh, specifically when it comes to issues of construction, what COVID has done uh, more than anything has uh, provided certain stressors with respect to supply chain Mm -hmm. for uh, construction materials. Uh, and that is addressed uh, for a number of our projects. It's also affected labor shortages generally in the construction sector. And so that obviously is something we've been we've been dealing with. With regards to real estate, prices are currently surpassing the height of the mid-2000s housing bubble. Explain why this is or why this is not indicative of a bubble and the key distinctions between the price rises that we saw in 2006, 2008, as opposed to what we're seeing today. Well, first and foremost, it's important to say that this is not 2006 to 2008 for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. First of all, we have, if you will, a more sophisticated and experienced uh, commercial sector when it comes to real estate. We had all of us who had experienced 2006 and 2008 uh, saw many uh, companies and people entering the market that had no business being in there. Second of all, uh, we have the standards for financing for mortgages are much more uh, stringent and uh, predictable today than they were in the 2006 to 2008 timeframe. Thirdly, what we're dealing with now, and one of the, the, the single greatest determiner has been we're dealing with Uh, high demand and short supply. What happened in 2006 and 2008 was at a certain point in time, supply so far outweighed demand that you had this uh, tremendous trauma on on the markets. And last is we're dealing with a circumstance now, particularly the last six months, where we can see some predictability and stability in terms of Monetary policy, fiscal policy, 
tax policy and to a certain extent trade policy. Um, so undoubtedly, the the inflation that's been taking place, the high prices uh, that are undeniable right now in the real estate sector, really are due to factors that are exacerbated by what's happened from COVID, but to a great extent are normal factors, supply chain issues and supply chain disruptions, which have taken place because of COVID, labor shortages. We have a low interest rate environment, which is very good, but we do have experienced and what I would call sophisticated developers uh, and individuals uh, involved in the real estate sector more so than we did in 2006 and 2008, where candidly, everybody was entering the market to see if they could make a buck. What factors will have to change in order for real estate prices to slow or level off? And why might that be preferable to seeing prices continue to rise? What's going to have to happen for uh, for prices to stabilize more uh, is we're going to have to see a greater supply of uh, in, the, in the real estate market. We're going to see more building taking place. We're starting to see that now. Uh, we're seeing what had been... Uh, a dearth of labor and, and quite frankly, a lack of supply of labor. That's going to be coming back, uh, particularly in Q3 and Q4. Uh, we're seeing prices of raw materials starting to stabilize a little bit. On the other end, though, uh, the more money that's going to be invested in infrastructure as the result of what appears to be at least one, possibly two infrastructure bills will uh, create more uh, stresses and strains on availability of raw materials. So that's, I think, an incredibly important factor for people to keep an eye on. Uh, We're going to see generally stable interest rates. They're going to remain low, uh, and that's going to help from a monetary policy perspective. But if we're talking about what's going to make prices go down, I don't believe they're going to go down. I think we may find that the, the uptick, if you will, of prices will uh, come down. But I don't believe we're going to see uh, prices uh, fall to uh, pre-pandemic levels. Uh, I don't believe that's going to happen. The reality is we have a a surging economy in the United States. We are also an incredibly attractive place for foreign investors to place their money right now. Uh, We we have continued to be at the forefront of economic recovery. And when you add all that together, we're going to be a place where people are going to want to work, play, and live. And that's that's just the reality. And now that we find ourselves in this new landscape uh, that will be forever changed moving forward, what's next for Hamptons Group? Well, it's interesting. During the pandemic, we actually expanded to a certain extent, both in New York and in California, uh, for a number of reasons. We wanted to become a little bit less uh, parochial in our service areas, but also because we realize that uh, investors, partners, and projects located in the key uh, centers of industry in our country in the Northeast and in California warranted our, our investment in time and treasure. So we've, uh, we've done quite a bit of expansion. Uh, what we're most excited about is uh, the fact that for the most part, there we can see some level of predictability in terms of uh, this country's economic uh, future. And because of that, it allows us to focus on two aspects, alpha and beta. Beta obviously looking 
at issues of volatility and where we can reduce those for our partners, investors, and projects, and at issues of alpha where we can look at opportunities to uh, to enhance returns. So we're actually very uh, bullish, if you will, on the economy, certainly for the next two to four years. If there were two factors that I think would be mitigating to those, and these are not just for Hampton's group, but they're for the economy generally, they would be matters related to climatic change and business continuity due to issues of, of not just, let's say, hurricanes in Florida or uh, drought or fire in California, but issues of climate change. And the second one is, if, gosh forbid, we find ourselves with the proliferation of COVID or another pandemic uh, uh, making a turn for the significant worse for our for our country. And those would be the two mitigating factors. But other than that, we're very, very encouraged about what things look like for Hamptons Group uh, and for the economy generally. Well, thank you again. That's Jeff Bartell, the chairman and managing director of Hamptons Group. My name is Abby Malone. Jeff, thank you again. You've been listening to Invest Insights. Be sure to follow, rate, and review this podcast to hear more. I'm Abby Malone. Thank you for tuning in. From Capital Analytics, I'm Abby Malone, and this is Invest Insights. Every week, we bring you perspectives, business advice, and more from the leading executives, entrepreneurs, and investors who are building, diversifying, and leading the way in the country's fastest-growing metro markets. Real leaders, real insights, right now. Welcome to Invest Insights. I'm Abby Malone. I'm joined today by Leslie Packer, the managing partner for Ellison Winters. Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Season four, we're going to be talking about this new norm, this new economy that's been created due to the pandemic and looking at uh, strategies that were shaped due to the pandemic and will lead us into the future. But before we get there, I want to ask you on the personal side, what are some new personal norms that started during the pandemic, whether it be hobbies or interests or technologies, uh, ways of operating that you will carry with yourself into the future? Well, probably like everyone, my closets and dressers are all now well organized, at least for for the short run. And then I found that um, I actually did not go back to our gym when it reopened. I had gotten used to doing my fitness videos at home. I prefer them. So I've just kind of changed the way I I work out based on um, getting used to doing things a different way. Very good. Uh, Earlier this year, you were named one of the state's most influential leaders in business on North Carolina's inaugural power list. Congratulations. Thank you. How are you working to influence your firm, your sector, and your community? I think that the most influential thing that any leader can do is model the behavior that you would like to encourage and be a good role model. And so I try to do that. And I think it's important for business leaders to be involved in the community and serve on you know, boards of charities and organizations. And so I try to uh, make it a point to do those things and set an example there as well. And then just specific to the legal profession, professionalism and courtesy um, are important to being able to get things done as lawyers. So I think serving on bar organizations, reaching across the aisle and and emphasizing those values is important. And 
really mentoring and encouraging all of those uh, behaviors in our younger colleagues. You recently spoke at the Empowering Women in Law Firm Leadership Virtual Conference Series, in which one of the topics was strategies to attract and empower women in a firm. Many people might say that there's not nearly enough being done in terms of female empowerment, particularly in the legal profession. In an era where more people are educated on diversity and equity issues than ever before, why does it seem to be that women are still climbing the proverbial mountain um, in this regards? That's a great question. And I think it's it's not only within the legal profession, it's within other professions as well. But what I know, of course, is the legal profession and the numbers just bear it out. There are equal numbers of women and men going to law school. And then the further up you look in organizational charts, the fewer women there are. And I think there are just systemic and structural barriers that we need to to work on. We need to work on not making assumptions about what women want to do or can and can't do, and make sure that they're given the same opportunities for mentoring, training, and and just opportunities to work on matters uh, as their male counterparts. And why do you believe there's still such a fight to achieve gender equity and pay parity? You know, of course, there are challenges of balancing parenthood. And for some women who find themselves in the sandwich generation, as it's called, also balancing you know, aging parents, uh, but firms need to be flexible and have generous parental leave policies for both women and men and work past those barriers because women can, of course, achieve uh, just as much in their professional careers, perhaps on a slightly different trajectory, just depending on their personal circumstances. We all know that technology adoption has disrupted all industries, including the legal sector, from remote working uh, adaptability, automated processes, and Zoom depositions. What concerns are emerging amongst lawyers that you talk to regarding this rapid change? Well, I think that um, we do have concerns. I think that there are some things that have been good. Uh, There are some things we can do more efficiently without all of the travel, and those will remain. But I think the biggest area of concern is training young associates, um, mentoring young young lawyers, and preserving culture of the firm because you can't do that when everybody is remote all the time. It requires being together and having in-person experiences. So I think that's something that we'll, we'll have to focus on uh, regaining as we emerge from our COVID cocoons. Yeah, and are there things that you're currently doing to maintain company culture in this remote environment? Absolutely. I mean, we're encouraging everybody to come back to the office who's who's fully vaccinated and almost everybody is or everybody is as far as I know. And so, you know, can resume our past practices of just getting together at lunchtime, sharing stories, sharing experiences. Uh, I think it's important for people to get back to the, depending on the industry, back to the office and back to the office culture as soon as safely possible. And as we find ourselves in this new economy and new landscape, what's in store for Ellison Winters and the legal profession overall? So I think the legal profession is evolving as we're more and more in kind of an on-demand culture uh, and clients expect immediate responsiveness just as, you know, we're all used to these days. So I think for law firms, uh, we have to adapt to the model of of the fully client-centered law firm and make sure that we are we have the technology and we have the responsiveness to be available to our clients and to, to really 
understand our clients' businesses and make ourselves into their trusted advisors, which I think is what clients are looking for, is law firms that can really add value to their businesses. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. That was Leslie Packer, the managing partner for Ellison Winters. My name is Abby Malone. Leslie, thank you again. You've been listening to Invest Insights. Be sure to follow, rate, and review this podcast to hear more. I'm Abby Malone. Thank you for tuning in. four times related to how much passive loss can you deduct against active income kind of concept, like a passive loss concept. And I did not know the answer. I did not know what the threshold was, but I knew that I was seeing the same question every time. So I just answered a different number every single time because that's what you do to hedge your bets. And had I known that one question answer, I would have passed, but I didn't know a threshold. And that's the point that made me fail. I'm sorry, that doesn't mean uh, that the old example is a good job. You think that was it? I, you remember, I failed you remember, a lot of other things. I clearly didn't get enough questions. Well, right. Do you remember the weaker areas you got on the diagnostic? diagnostic? No, because I just looked at, I just knew all I needed was one more or a couple more points. And so, so I, to, to me, and honestly, when I was taking the exam, I knew when I was doing concept related things, I was doing well. I I could, I was like, I understand the question. I'm seeing answers that are reflective of what I'm thinking. I'm probably doing okay. When it came to fresh, anything related to a threshold, because I knew I didn't study it. Um, And I looked at it, I was like, I I have no idea what the threshold is. Why would I know what the threshold is? That's something I can look up every year. They change every year. That's right. That's right. Why would I test on a threshold? And so to me, the old exam was broken anyway. And so while while I realize change is hard for everybody, it's not like the old thing was perfect. And so, and and to me, how did that make me a better professional or not? If if I could remember a threshold versus having my little, you know, the plastic cards they give you every year and looking it up or Googling it. I mean, so I, I hear your point, Phil, but I kind of come from a different perspective on it of we're not teaching our students what they need to know to be successful. I agree with you. And that's the problem. Okay, good. Well, I yeah, finally no, no, agree. No, no, I, voice. I, I <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I was, and it wasn't clear. I think you have to know all this digital analytics. You have to know cloud accounting. You have to know all this stuff. Artificial intelligence will be. Uh, now, the problem is, though, they have to first find professors, all right, who know this stuff and, you know, and not, the smaller schools have those people, all right? But the smaller schools are not going to take a different CPA exam, all right, than the larger schools. That's all I'm saying, yeah. Okay, yeah, well, I mean, that's fair. I mean, that's that's always yeah. the, the concern is resource capacity and and all those different things. It's age-old tale. Danielle, I enjoyed having you on, all right? And oh, it's been care, 